Hey, so I don't know about y'all, but I'm pretty stoked about missions trips. We've got a lot of them coming up. I hope that you guys are making plans to join us. Um, if you are not making plans, um, let me encourage you. Check, check. Are we on? Let me encourage you. I'll just talk really loud until it works. Let me encourage you to uh, get plugged into a mission trip. You need to talk to your life group leaders. You need to come talk to us. And um, just like you said with Sonora, we've got about 20 spots open, and, uh, and that's it. And the first, 50, first 20 people to give us $50 to go to Sonora, that's, that's all you've got. That's all we're taking with us. So um, y'all come and... Uh, Join us as we are doing a great work in Sonora. You guys have friends from Sonora. We got a lot of students that are at Angelo State from Sonora. We're talking just like 90 miles south of us is where this went down. And so we're going to go serve these guys. We're going to go love on them. We're going to sleep in a church. Church is going to feed us. It's going to be a great time. So we really do want you guys to come and join us. And obviously, Ecuador, listen, I love what they said. They made this statement. I don't know if you caught it or not, but they said... Um, they said, because of your experience in Chi Alpha, you guys are already experts in how to reach a university. And so for so many of you, that's absolutely true. And um, I would just encourage you, um, if you have any inkling in your heart at all that you want to go to Ecuador, you need to get on that list, you need to begin to pray, and, and you need to uh, begin to send out letters and get some funding in. If you don't have a passport, by the way, go get a passport, like yesterday. Um, you're in Chi Alpha now, and we do international mission trips all the time. So you need a passport. Go make it happen. It lasts for 10 years. Go get your passport. And then whenever your parents are mad, you can send them my way because um, they don't want you to leave the country. Um, so, yeah. Anyways, we're in the middle of our relationship series called Sacred Search. Tonight, um, we are going to talk about marriage. And, um, man, this is an exciting topic for me because I'm married. And uh, you guys want to be, so it's, it ought to be a good topic all the way around. But um, we've been reading from a book called The Sacred Search. Not reading from a book. We, we, I, I read this book, and I pulled some great material out of this book. Um, I would encourage you um, to pick up this book, go find it, read it. It's got some great uh, advice in there. Biblical advice on how to pursue the right person and, and what that should look like. And I just want to start tonight by <clears throat> telling a story that um, is in the first chapter of this book. Um, so I'm just going to read a little bit here. It, it's, a, it's a story of, of, it's actually two different stories compared to each other concerning marriage. And the guy that wrote this book is super smart. He counsels people. He advises people. These guys came to him. These are a couple of, of people who um, came to him for marriage advice and marriage counseling. He says this in the book. The faithful pastor's face grew taut as he said, let me be honest with you. My marriage has constituted the biggest cross of my life. The tears that slipped out of his eyes and rolled down his cheeks provided a sobering picture of the weight that this man carries with him every day of his life. Instead of launching him into newer and bigger opportunities, instead of providing encouragement and sustenance and hope, his marriage was acting like a dead weight. God continues to use him, but he walks his journey with a rock in his shoe that hurts him every step of the way. Then he says, another story, a 30-something woman looked into my eyes and tears of another sort flowed freely as she spoke of her husband's care for her. She had some health issues to contend with and life had not been easy, but her husband had been, <clears throat> had been another kind of rock, a source of tremendous encouragement and acceptance. 
Next to Jesus, my husband has been the greatest joy of my life. I can't even imagine where I'd be without him or how I would have faced all that I have without him by my side. Now, both of these scenarios are, are actually true stories from out of his office. And I want you to notice the real life frustration and joy that each person feels. One person is is crying tears of pain, working as hard as he can to keep his marriage together, but his relationship is compared to a cross. It's zapped his strength, but he perseveres because he knows it's the right thing to do. The other person is also crying, but not because she's struggling through a difficult relationship. She weeps because she is grateful for a man who loves her so well, so wonderfully, that she can't imagine life without him. Tears of pain on one hand, tears of joy on another. Bearing a cross versus a union compared to a foretaste of heaven. The question is, 10 years after you're married, what kind of tears will you be crying? See, the answer to whether or not your marriage ends up is like a good, a solid rock providing a foundation for you to build a life and a family on, or whether it ends up as a bad rock that's stuck in your shoe that that, that will cause you pain, that question is not tied to who you marry, but why you got married in the first place. See, the who matters. It's why we talk about searching for the right person. It's why we talk about becoming the right person. But more important than the who is defining the why. Because the why you get married is going to help you define the who you marry and who you become in your marriage. I see too often that people settle on the who and then they try to convince all their friends of the why. It works like this. You've got a a brother or a sister who begins dating someone and, and instead of them becoming a closer part of a community, they actually start hiding. And then, you know, a few months later, a few years later, whatever that looks like, some time goes on, and before you know it, these individuals that have been hiding, and you don't really know anything about their relationship, but now they want to get married, and they're trying to convince you of why their marriage is a good idea. And I'll say this, if there's anything in your relationship that makes you think you need to hide, you probably need to get out of that relationship. But you need to define the why. Because the why is going to help you figure out the who. The truth is when we're young, it's kind of easy to get sucked into the, the hot and excitable feelings, right? Some people will call them hormones. It's probably some more than that. But in the end, hot and excitable does not create warm and dependable. And the truth is, when we're old and when we're gray... Warm and dependable is what we hope for because the point of marriage is not to grow young together but to grow old together, right? We want to fight for warm and dependable. We want to experience a loving union that is full of continual dependable trust and love rather than just like remembering a time when we used to love each other, like past tense. The hope is that we can pursue our future marriage and our future marriage partner with wisdom. And the best way to do that is to create a vision for what could be. I'd venture to say that everybody in here would say that they hope that their future spouse is a rock, a solid, constant, loving partner in life, rather than a a spouse that they don't even get along with. But the stats are pretty clear. If you just pursue marriage based on feelings, not on wisdom, you got a 50-50 shot of making it. But the truth is, even if your marriage lasts... It doesn't mean it's good. So, what do we have to do 
to find that life-giving, God-honoring marriage? Well, tonight, I want to help us create a vision for marriage. We're going to look at three aspects of good marriages as provided for in the Bible. Now, if you're very familiar with the Bible, you'll recognize this. Um, There are really very few examples of marriages in the Bible that you would hope to emulate. Most of the marriages in the Bible are pretty jacked up. Most of the people in the Bible are pretty jacked up, <laughs> okay? But, but here's the deal. Like, just because God chose to put broken people in marriages doesn't mean that marriage is broken. Does that make sense? See, if, I've never met a couple with a marriage problem. I've, married some, I've met some married people with problems that got married that had wrong expectations. Maybe they were selfish or they never imagined how their, their past could end up affecting their future. But none of these people had marriage problems. They were people problems inside of a marriage. Problems that broken people brought into a marriage. They weren't problems that existed because of marriage. Here's what I find most of the time. They just didn't know that their expectations were wrong. Their vision was off. They just didn't know the effects that their past would have on their future marriages. They just didn't know the severity of the damage that sin would cost inside of this perfect union we call marriage. No one had defined marriage well enough for them. And no one gave them a vision for what God had in mind for their marriage. I would venture to say that for most of you in this room, you have not had a great example of what a proper marriage actually looks like. You've seen something that someone called a marriage... But it didn't really line up with the real, defin- real definition of marriage. It, it kind of works like this, okay? Like, let's just say that tonight, <clears throat> we decided we're going to do a competition. And because we're a Christian group, we're going to call it a, a scripture verse, you know, memory competition. And here, here's the deal. Um, the person that wins this competition gets an all-expenses-paid trip to Paris. You and a friend, all right? And whoever wins this trip, we're going to take care of your, your, your lodging. We're going to take care of your travel. We're going to take care of the food when you get there. All expenses paid trip to Paris. How many of you guys would be like, yeah, I'm in. Let me try. Okay. So <clears throat> let's just say we did this whole competition and you're like, I got this, Heath. I got like three verses memorized. I got this. Okay. So, and you actually win. And then I come along and I hand you a Priceline voucher to Paris, Texas. Yeehaw. It's not quite the same, is it? That looks more like an oil, Derek, doesn't it? Oil, yeah, oil. See, what I know is that many of the marriage examples that we've been given aren't actually marriages at all. Many of the relationships that have been called marriages aren't correct descriptors of what a real marriage actually is. Most marriages today equate to a dating level of commitment. I'm with you so long as it's good for me. Dating is a false commitment. So if you're in here and you're dating and I ask if you're single, you're still single until you are married. Dating is a false commitment. It's it's saying I'll be exclusive to you and you be exclusive to me until I find a better option. Here's what happens though, right? You find a better option, they get mad. They find a better option, they're like, peace, I'm out. Right? 
Otherwise, they would have made the true commitment and put a ring on it, right? Dating is a false commitment. But that's how people treat marriage today. That's how a lot of people treat marriage today. They're, They're really not the same thing that God had in mind. So tonight, I want us to gain a better idea of what marriage looks like from a biblical perspective. Point number one, in biblical marriage, God defines it. God has defined biblical marriage for us. We'll read in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 27, 28. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Man, there's a lot of people that hate even that verse right there. Um, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. I got two kids. I'm doing all right on that one. Um, Genesis 2.24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And here's what I recognize. These scriptures kind of fly in the face of a lot of cultural values and, and, and like modern cultural values today. In fact, just like a couple weeks ago, we had someone offended by our sacred search poster that was up at campus because it only included heterosexual symbols representing both the male and the female symbols. You can see them down there on the heart, right? Now, we're not trying to be offensive when we only use these two symbols. But we are a Christian organization that is Bible-based. We are biblically oriented and Honestly, it's the only combination of symbols that I can define biblically. It's the only, this is the only stance that we can take. And so if you're in here tonight and you're mad that I'm not talking about your preferred sexual orientation, I'm not trying to be offensive, but I simply can't defend your case biblically. And in fact, just like in every other area of our lives, When we find that our lives don't match biblical requirements, I would encourage you to really investigate the area of your sexuality and find out what God who created sexuality has to say about it. And then, if you desire to live in God's blessing in the area of your sexuality, you need to adhere to biblical standards. I believe that God has a deep desire to bless your future marriage, to bless your future sex life. But to obtain that blessing, you must adhere to biblical principles. God cannot and he will not bless anything that goes against his plans for marriage as he defines it. So if we plan one day, here's what happens. We plan to get married inside of a Christian church with a Christian pastor, right? In front of God and everybody. And we hope to gather everybody together. And man, we want the blessing of the pastor on our marriage. And we want the blessing of God on our marriage. And if you want all of those things, we need to investigate what God has to say about those things. And we need to align with what God has to say about those things. So sexuality is actually something we're going to discuss later on in this in this series. Um, and, and I promise, this is not going to be like the awkward 12-year-old sex talk that you had with your parents, all right? Like, we, we believe God created sex. It's good. It's awesome. It should be hot and steamy and all those things you dream about. And, you know, God wants you to enjoy sex with your, with your spouse. And all of that is God-honoring, believe it or not. It, it really is. So when we talk about defining marriage as God defines marriage, 
I want us to look at an area that God points out here. In Genesis 2.24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. Now, um, I want to I make a point here. Um, when I perform marriage ceremonies, here's what happens, okay? Um, the groom comes down the aisle alone, right? He stands up at the front, and then the bride is brought in on her dad's right arm, Okay? Brought down the aisle, comes down, and then she comes and she stands on my right side. Now, we do the whole ceremony, the whole rings and I do, and, you know, the kiss and, you know, all the promises are made, and we get them married, okay? And then at the end of this, what they do is is the bride who's here and the groom that's here, they begin to walk out, and now the bride leaves on the groom's right arm. And there's a symbolic transfer here that takes place where literally the dad brings in his daughter and he is effectively telling that groom, I am now entrusting you with the most precious gift that God has ever entrusted me with. And she moves from the protection and the provision of her father to the protection and provision of her husband. So inherent in this is this idea that now These two newly married individuals are no longer under the care and direction of their mothers and fathers. They are meant to begin a life on their own. They are meant to begin a life. It's up to the husband and the wife to now define their lives together. So I heard a story one time of a dad who had given away his daughter in marriage. And the newlyweds went home and like most newlyweds do, the young couple got into a fight. And this must have been a pretty big fight because she ends up calling her dad. She's like, Daddy, I just don't understand him. I'm so angry at him. I just want to come home. And the dad, just with all the wisdom and the grace that he could muster in that moment, lovingly responded, you are home. You need to stay there and work it out. Why? Because she had moved from her parents to a union of marriage where it's, it's now their job to build their home together. When you get married, the expectation is that you are creating a life together. So there's no more running home to your parents. Your job is to create a new home, one that is defined by the two of you. And that's problematic because as much as we hope for our future, as much hope as we have for like our future homes, our future families, you know, our future marriages, and we hope all those things are awesome, the truth is we all have past experiences that are going to show up and impact our future. We've all had some experiences in past marriages, whether it be our parents or our grandparents or aunts or uncles or sisters or brothers or whoever, we've seen marriages go wrong, and some of those things are going to impact our future. So I'll give you an example for me and Ashley. Um, when I was growing up, I rarely ever saw my parents yell at each other. Now, I knew that they would fight, but they normally would fight behind closed doors, and, and I never heard them yelling at each other, okay? Um, now, Ashley, her family was like the exact opposite. <laughs> we're going to fight, and we're going to yell, and everybody's going to know it, all right? I remember going to Christmas at Ashley's family, uh, family's house before we got married, and um, I just remember it being loud. Like, these, these guys are loud. That, that's, all, that's the only way I knew to describe it, right? And so when, when me and Ashley first got married and we would get in a fight, okay, she'd start yelling. And here's what I heard when she's yelling. 
you don't love me enough to like calm yourself and actually discuss this. And then so because she's yelling, I would just shut down. And I wouldn't respond. And here's what she heard. You don't love me enough to discuss something that's obviously very important to me right now. And so because of our two past experiences in marriage, we were actually telling each other, I don't love you in a way that we never thought could actually happen. And here's the truth. Neither one of us was right in that situation. Why? Because both of us took our parents' thing and we tried to make it our thing. But according to the scriptures, we don't get to do that. In fact, I'll say this. If you learned anything from your parents about marriage and relationships or fighting or raising kids or finances, if any of that stuff is not biblical, you should not make that a defined rule for your future marriage. At least not until you've discussed it with your future spouse and they agree. Because it's one thing if God says it, right? That's something you adhere to, but it's another thing if your parents said it. At that point, it needs to be discussed between the both of you. Why? Because you left mommy and daddy at the altar when you got married. And now it's your turn to build your own home together. Inherent in this idea is this. If you're not ready to to discuss important things like marriage and relationships and fighting and raising kids and finances... You're not ready for marriage. You need to be able to discuss some important things with your future spouse before you get married. Otherwise, you're not ready. I counsel couples and we take them through a long process and we literally talk about how do we spend money? How do we save money? We talk about how do we raise our kids? How do we discipline kids? Hey, how do we fight? How do we fight fair? There's all these different things where your past experiences that aren't necessarily biblical will want to try and pop up. But the truth is, it's up to us at this point, it's up to you and your spouse to redefine or to define what your new home should look like. And the truth is that getting married in today's culture, you can get married in today's culture without considering anything that God had to say about marriage. But you'd be wise to investigate how awesome your future marriage, your future family, and your future home could be if you'll commit your marriage over to the Lord. I, I can show you proof after proof after proof. And, and I'll hear men think, you know, men, they'll say things like this, right? Like, well, I don't know why I need to get married. I mean, it's just a piece of paper. And how many of you ladies would agree it is not just a piece of paper? It's about a ring, Right? <laughs> You forgot the most important part, dude, right? Listen, guys, the ladies want a ring, start saving now, okay? It's, I'm helping you out. Just make it happen. Them ladies want a ring. I bought my wife a ring pop because she said she wanted the biggest rock that I could find. Ring pop was it. it. God has done a great job of defining marriage for us. And God's marriage, when done God's way, doesn't have a 50-50 chance of survival. The truth is, it's still death do we part. It's a one-shot gig. Once and done, till death do we part. It's a lifelong, life-giving union between two souls. One day, in Matthew 19, Jesus was asked about divorce. 
And the answer that Jesus actually gave concerning divorce was phenomenal because he didn't, a- he didn't answer about divorce, he answered about marriage. Okay? And he said this in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Now listen to this last sentence. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. See, when it comes to marriage, we all talk about finding our soulmate. You need to define your soulmate as your soul mate. Your soulmate, the one that you choose to get married, will be the one that you will end life with. Your soulmate becomes your soul mate. Now think about this. At the end of Matthew, Matthew 19, uh, verse 6, he says, Two will become one flesh, which implies that one husband and one wife Come together to become one. Now, I'm no superstar when it comes to biology. (laughs) All right? Like, my wife is. Um, I'm not. I'm more of a math guy. But even in a math sense, one plus one does not equal one. All right? That doesn't happen. In fact, if you know how to do this, let's go talk to your algebra prof. We're going to blow his mind this week. All right? Like, one plus one does not equal one. Right? That's not normal. It defies math, defies logic, defies biology. But... I'll tell you this, God does it. God does it. There is something miraculous about a marriage that is defined by God, that is blessed by God, and God takes two and makes them one. So when you pursue God's design for marriage, something miraculous happens where this two becomes one, and now I can't do that, and I know you can't do that, but this union is something that God does. And that's kind of cool to think about. So when it says what God has joined together, let no man separate, he's actually talking about the marriage that God has put together where two indeed have become one by the power of God. God does this because it's representative of the relationship of Christ and us as his bride. We're the church. If you're a Christian in here, you get to be the bride of Christ. That's okay because some of you women get to be sons every now and then, scripturally. So this union where two becomes one, it sounds really good, but there are some things that are required of us in this union. And to look at some of these things, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read a large portion of scripture here. Um, Hopefully you're okay with reading scripture in church. So um, Ephesians 5.21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Amen. As you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, for which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Where's my wife at? I think she left already. I don't know. She knew this was coming. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. But holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body. But they fed and cared for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. 
Verse 31, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Are you seeing a pattern here when it comes to marriage? Um, That's repeated time and time again. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now in marriage, God creates two that become one flesh, but I'll say this. They simply can't do that without paying attention to verse 21, which says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It doesn't say submit to your husband if he's a really good guy. It doesn't say submit to your wife if she's smoking hot. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual submission out of reverence for Christ is the only way that two people will ever fall in love and stay in love. Think about it. When you first started dating, um, you, you were making sacrifices of time and money and energy. Like, if you've ever been in that, like, lovebird stage in dating, right? Like, you're skipping class to hang out with the newfound love of your life, right? You're... You know, the dudes are bringing flowers and she's writing love notes on his car. And, you know, you're doing all these little things to serve one another. You're literally submitting to one another's desires. I know she'll like this. I'm going to go do it. I know he'll like that. I'm going to go do that. And so you, you, there's this mutual submission attitude that just says, I want to do something they like. <clears throat> and I'll say this. If we kept this attitude of mutual submission towards our spouse... There would never be another divorce, ever. If mutual submission ruled and reigned in our marriages, there would never be the need for another counseling session. Think about it. If in every fight, both the, the, the husband and the wife said this, it's my selfishness that has caused this fight, and I'm sorry. Let's do it your way. Would there ever be a marriage that ended ever again? If there was a true mutual submission among both parties out of reverence for Christ, would you ever see another marriage end? Ever. The truth is, we all recognize that marriage is really just like two sinners pursuing righteousness together. Right? Two sinners who are trying to chase after Jesus together. And if we were willing to mutually submit to one another to help each other get to that place. Man, there would be no more marriage counselors. They would be like out of a job. This whole thing where you're going to submit to me and I submit to you. And man, I'm, I'm not going to allow selfishness to get in the way of our relationship. Here's what a lot of people think about Ephesians 5. Um, And I know I kind of joked about it. They come away thinking that the man is the head, right? And they they tend to think that this scripture gives the man the authority to become like a dictatorial, tyrannical ruler. He just gets to do whatever he wants. But that's totally not the idea behind this scripture. When wives submit to their husbands, um, there's there's a job for the husbands as well. In fact, verse 32 says, I'm talking about Christ in the church. And what we know about Christ is as the head of the church, he's also the one who laid his life down for the church. So what you've got to see here is two things. Marriage creates headship, 
But marriage also crucifies headship. Marriage creates headship, but marriage crucifies headship. We see that with Christ in the church. You see, the man is supposed to be the leader. He's supposed to be the one to lead in service, to lead in love, to lead in sacrifice. He's supposed to lead in sacrificing his thing for the sake of another. I had an uncle that um, uh, when I was growing up, he loved doing like dude stuff, okay? He was always like hunting, fishing, golfing, you know, shooting stuff. Like he reloaded his own ammo. He collected guns. He went to shooting competitions, all this cool stuff. But his marriage was like horrible. And his wife didn't appreciate him being gone doing all this dude stuff all the time. So he gave up golfing and his marriage got better. See, because hunting he did with his kids. Collecting guns he did with his son. But golfing was for him. That was his thing. But so that his marriage could be better, and he's the man, he led the way in laying down his thing first. And as the leader, he made the sacrifice. That's what it looks like to lead the way in mutual submission. You do your thing first. You make the first sacrifice. Man, some of you guys need to give some stuff up like yesterday if you ever hope to get married. Like, some of you guys, you won't put down your video games long enough to get a degree, much less get a girl to marry you. And the truth is, like, okay, I'm moving into dad Heath mode for a moment, okay? Um, (laughs) Men do hard things, and we take responsibility. And that's the kind of man that your future wife wants to marry. And so... It's evidenced in this. You won't put down the video controller long enough to, to, to cultivate an intimate relationship with Jesus, who is the easiest person on the face of the earth to be loved and accepted by. And if you won't cultivate that relationship, you will never cultivate an intimate relationship with a woman, especially not a strong, godly woman who wants a strong, godly man. Now, ladies, you're hollering, but your time's coming. Okay. Um, ladies, some of you think it's more important to plow through your classes at college than it is to cultivate a relationship with Jesus. You won't stop studying long enough to develop an intimate relationship with Jesus, much less notice the men that he's surrounded you by, the godly men that he's surrounded you by. And the truth is, During this time, your college years, your young adult years, it's going to be the easiest time for you to find a mate ever. And and what happens is, I see this, what happens is you 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 get a young lady who excels in school and she does really well and there's nothing wrong with that, but it almost becomes an idol. And so she shoots her way through school, she gets a really great job, she enters into the workforce and then she figures out that in the workforce it's really hard to find a godly man. Welcome to American culture. Um, now it's not that godly men don't exist in the workforce let's be clear there's some godly men in the workforce that are in this room tonight okay Um, fellas I'm throwing you a bone here okay Um, (laughs) but if you just continue to pursue selfishly your thing and you never sacrifice your thing you could be sacrificing a really great marriage 
And the truth is, like, if your parents were in here, they would be shooting me for saying this. <laughs> you need to focus on your studies, right? But just remind them that if you don't find a spouse, they don't get grandkids. <laughs> just saying. They'll ease up a little bit. <clears throat> just a few years ago, I sat with a guy, super sharp dude. He told me he wasn't going to date a great godly woman yet because he was too busy studying and trying to finish school. He's taking a lot of hours for his last semester, you know, and he's like, man, it's just, you know, one more semester and then maybe I'll pursue her. And I asked him if having a wife for 60 years was worth an extra six months in college. He got smart and he pursued the girl. (laughs) Now he's married and they're both missionaries pursuing God's will for their life together. And they're a great married couple. But, but I shudder to think that, dude, with what seems like a wise decision to the world, could have forfeited something that was really great in God's eyes. A godly marriage. So men, if you want to do this God's way, and if you hope to have a marriage that is defined as two becoming one, you're going to lead the way in what it looks like to sacrifice your thing. You'll be the first one to say, it's my selfishness that's the problem here, and I'm laying it down. And ladies, out of reverence for Christ, because we all know the dudes ain't worth it, if you'll lay down your selfishness, (laughs) you'll find your marriage as fulfilling and dreamy and God-honoring as you hope that it will be. See, what Jesus models for us is submission based on love. And inside of that environment, two really do become one. And what God joins together, nobody gets to separate. Is that not the kind of marriage that we all hope to have? Point number three about marriage um, is this. Jesus displays it. We're about to wrap up. As you read through the New Testament, if you haven't ever read through the New Testament, give it a go. Start with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Start with those four books. Go read about this Jesus. As you read through the, the, the New Testament, you'll figure out like there's this huge meta narrative in the New Testament about Christ and his bride, who is the church. Okay? And, and now I need your help here, okay? Whenever you go to a wedding, you attend a wedding, and the groom enters and he takes his place at the front, you know, and he, he's all decked out, right? Like, what color suit is he normally wearing? Black, okay, right? If, if it was me, it was like a tan, right? Like, I've worn some chocolate browns, you know, some stuff like that, right? Um, and the idea behind the darker suit of the groom is that he, the groom, is the image bearer of Jesus, who took upon himself our sin and unrighteousness. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin... He made him become sin so that we could become the righteousness of Christ. So Jesus died in the place of his bride that we might become the righteousness of God. So the groom stands at the front in a dark suit. He's awaiting his bride. Somebody like me is a preacher and I'm standing there and I've got a mic. And all of a sudden I say, okay, I'll rise. And then what happens? Everybody's eyes shoot to the back of the building and, you know, the doors fling open. And then here comes the bride and her, her beautiful white pearly, you know, awesome, clean gown, right? And she's, you know, she's sparkling, 
you know, she looks better than she ever has, right? And that, like, just wait. One of these days, man, you'll get married and you'll think, man, she's, yeah, I cried when my wife walked down the aisle, y'all. She looks beautiful. She's clean. And, and what color is her dress? It's white. I want you to read why it's white. Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8 says this. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. The Lamb is Jesus. The wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. See, in Revelation 19, the wedding of the Lamb, who is Jesus, and his bride, his bride has been given bright and clean garments. Why is she wearing white? I'll say this. It isn't because she's pure and sinless and innocent. See, Romans, Romans is pretty clear whenever it says that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. So she's not sinless and innocent, but she is given a white dress to wear. The bride is image-bearing the church. And because Jesus has taken all of the sin of the church, we get to wear the righteousness of Christ. Our sin has been washed away by the sacrifice of Jesus. Can you imagine one day, men, making a sacrifice for your wife that builds her up that much? See, earthly marriage, when properly defined, is still the best picture of what we can give to the world of a love that God has for us and what Jesus did for us. Your future marriage will be the best picture of God's love to a lost and dying world. Because it is the picture of Christ and his church. All of scripture is full of this picture that one day, think about this, God, our heavenly father is going to walk us down the aisle and present us to Jesus. It's his bride that is unblemished, pure and clean because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Not because we deserve it, not because we were good enough, but because of the love and the sacrifice of Jesus for his bride. And we will be united forever in heaven. And what God puts together, let no one separate. That's eternity with Jesus. Now, we start talking about the sacrifice of Jesus and, you know, you dying and, and making sacrifices for your wife or dying to yourself, it might sound absolutely crazy to some of you who have never seen this type of marriage before. But, but marital submission looks like this. I put to death my desires. I die to myself. I submit to my wife's needs. I put her desires before my own I die to the restaurants that I want to go eat at so that we can go eat at her restaurant if she can ever figure out what that is. Um, I heard an old joke. There's only one time in history that a woman knew what she wanted to eat. And it was Eve in that garden with that apple. (laughs) 
just kidding. Here's the truth. Mutual submission, dying to yourself, all these things, that might seem counterintuitive. That I would need to die to myself to inject life into my marriage. But isn't that exactly what Jesus did for us? You see, you don't get new life without the death of Jesus. I'll say this, for some of you, you need to put some old ways to death. And adopt the life that Jesus wants to give you. It's only through the death and the resurrection of Jesus that we obtain new life. And I would add that since we're on the subject of relationships, that the only way that you get this single and searching and dating and marriage and relationships thing right is through the forgiveness, the love, and the power of Jesus. When you make Jesus not just Lord over your relational life, but over your entire life. See, when we call Jesus Lord, it means that we've put to death our old self, and we've accepted Him as our King. We've stopped doing things the old way. We started doing things His way. And when we, de- when we declare Jesus as Lord, He becomes our Savior. When He's our Savior, one day, we get to walk that aisle, escorted by our Heavenly Father. And we will be united with Jesus in heaven forever. Because what God joins together, nobody gets to separate. Some of you guys tonight, you need to make a decision to put an old life to death and accept the new life that Christ offers you. Let me pray for you guys tonight.